0: Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially. Because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B E T H. A R I E L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, I wanted to share a little bit, talk a little bit about the land of Israel and God's purpose for Israel with regard to the past, the present, and the future. So I want to take you on a little tour of the Bible. I did this one time before using a PowerPoint. I'm not doing that this morning, but if you have your Bible, start with me in Genesis chapter 12. When I think of Israel with regard to God's purposes in the past, it all starts here, where the Lord calls out Abraham from the land of the Chaldeans, from Ur, to go to a land that the Lord would show him. And the Lord tells Abraham, this promise. It has come to be referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a binding agreement. A covenant is a a statement, a statement by God that he will do such and such. And so in this covenant, this is a covenant whereby God is making certain promises to Abraham and ultimately to his descendants. There are two ways to look at this covenant. One way is to look at the provisions of the covenant, and there are three major provisions. Another way is to look at the covenant with regard to the uh, context of these promises. I'm not sure context is the right word here, but this is what I mean. First of all, in this promise that God makes to Abraham, there are three three ideas attached to it. Number one, it's a promise to him personally. Secondly, it's a promise to him nationally. Thirdly, it is a promise to him that is universal in scope. When I say it's a promise to Abraham, personally, we read in the first three verses that Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. That's a promise to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will bless you. That's a promise to Abraham. He makes the personal promise that he says, in you all the families of the earth be blessed. It will be through Abraham, a personal promise. He says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. Those are personal promises made to Abraham that are experienced not only in Abraham's life, but beyond. When you think about it, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Paul makes reference to the fact that all individuals that come to know Messiah become children of Abraham, followers of Abraham, attached to Abraham. And even other religions look at Abraham with uh, great acclaim. Islam, for example, looks at Abraham as their father, indeed as descendants of the Ishmaelites. But the point is that these are promises of a personal nature, but they're promises of a national nature. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants, plural, over the course of history. So these promises take on a national aspect to them. I make them with you, Abraham, but also to your descendants. And even the descendants that are outside this particular covenant, God makes a covenant with those descendants of Abraham as well. He makes a covenant with Ishmael and his descendants. He makes a covenant with Esau and his descendants. But it is a different covenant than the one he makes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those are national blessings, a national aspect. And there's a universal aspect. Because he says, "In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So one way we can look at the covenant is with regard to the spheres, maybe that's a better word, to which they touch. They touch Abraham personally, they touch Abraham and his descendants nationally, and it touches the world universally. That's why this passage is so critical to everything else that is said throughout the rest of the scriptures. Over and over again, Paul's going to come back to what God says here and in other places to Abraham, like in chapter 15 and 17 as well. But if we look at the covenant itself, there are three major blessings of the covenant, promises of the covenant, entities of the covenant. He promises him, first of all, a land. And in Genesis 15, we get the greater dimensions of that land. We talked about this last week or the week before. I'm losing track of when, where, and how. But we get the dimensions of the land. And we know it's the Euphrates River in the north. We know that it's the Jordan River on the east. We know that it is the Great Sea on the west. We know that it, that it is the Wadi El Arish in the south. That is the borders of the land of Israel. Today, the land of Israel does not encompass all those borders. In fact, they don't even encompass all the borders within the land when you consider that Israel has given the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians. And that the West Bank is under the Palestinian administration. Even land within those borders as such are not under the control of Israel today. And those borders were never under Israel's complete control. Even during the time of Solomon, he only put some of those areas under tribute, but never actually controlled them. When the Messiah returns, Israel will control all of that land that is promised to Israel. But there is a land that is promised to Israel. There is a descendant promised to Abraham and his descendants and to the people of Israel. That descendant would be none other than the Messiah of Israel who would come and sit on David's throne. And ultimately God promises to Abraham great blessing that will go to that will reach to the four corners of the earth. Now, so that those three aspects of the Abrahamic promise are reiterated and emphasized and sort of accentuated. God, throughout Israel's history, will then make a series of covenants for each one of those particular blessings. So when he made a blessing about, to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, later in Deuteronomy, chapters 28 to 30, he then establishes a separate covenant, reiterating his promise to give them the land. So in two places now, God makes this promise, this covenant, this binding agreement that I'm giving you this land. One to Abraham and then to the entire nation in the law through Moses in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. God promised Abraham a seed, a descendant. And years later, when David comes to the fore, God will send Nathan the prophet to David. And he will tell David that you will have a descendant to sit on your throne forever. And when Messiah is born, it's very interesting that the angel Gabriel reminds Mary of this very promise when he announces that she will be the bearer of the Messiah. Why? Because that promise to Abraham is reiterated, it is solidified, it's accentuated, it's emphasized, it's permanentized in the promise to David. And thus a whole separate covenant, the Davidic covenant, is established to reinforce what he said to Abraham in chapter 12. Later, again, God tells the Jewish people a new covenant the Lord will establish with his people. This is not the first time in Jeremiah chapter 31 that a new covenant is mentioned. But Moses had already told Israel in the book of Deuteronomy that God will make a new covenant. The covenant I'm establishing with you today as the mediator between God and Israel is of a temporary nature. It is not meant to be for all of time. It will only be until the Messiah comes. That's why Paul says that the law would be a schoolmaster, keyword, until Messiah would come, to lead us to him. There was a time frame, it was temporarily given to Israel as a sign, as a witness, as a pointer to the one they were to put their faith and trust in. Because when he comes, he's going to inaugurate the final covenant among Israel, the new covenant, which promises the law written in and transforming our hearts. That new covenant was established by Messiah. When he celebrated Passover, he said, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of sins. And as a result, with the pouring out of his own blood on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection ratified and brought that new covenant into fruition. That is the covenant you and I are experiencing today. The writer to the Hebrews, a little side note here, but the writer to the Hebrews is very particular about this truth. In Hebrews chapter 8, he makes the point that the law was temporary to lead us to this new covenant. But what's really interesting to me is in Hebrews chapter 7, read it sometime. It says that in order for the Messiah to be our great high priest, the law had to come to an end. And the reason it had to come to an end is because the law stipulates that the priests of Israel would be Levitical and descendants of Aaron. And as long as the law is operating, our Messiah cannot be our great high priest. Why? Because Messiah was not of the tribe of Levi, nor from a descendant of Aaron. He was of the descendant of David and from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he could be our king. But according to the Mosaic law, he could not be our priest. So how does he become our priest? By the law ending. And the new covenant being established and therefore he can be our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what's more, the Melchizedekian order of priesthood is not just a priesthood, it's a king priesthood. And therefore for our Messiah to be our king and priest, he can't be a priest after the order of Aaron or Levi. And if the Mosaic law continues to operate, then the only priesthood in Israel can be Levitical and Aharonic. But we're told by the writer to the Hebrews that the law has come to an end as an operating system. And it has come to an end because the new covenant has been established. And the new covenant brings in the greatest of all blessings that God had intended for Israel and for the world. So the... Abrahamic covenant has these three elements, land, seed, blessing. And each one of those elements has a separate covenant. The new covenant for blessing, the Davidic covenant for the seed that would sit on David's throne, and the land covenant in promise of the land. Notice that all four of those covenants, Abrahamic, new, land, seed covenant, Davidic covenant, they're all unconditional. None of them had to do anything. In fact, when David was told he would have his son to sit on a throne forever, he had just committed adultery and murder. And Nathan was told to bring that to to David's attention. He brings it to his attention, and in the same context, he then says, but God has purposes for you. And he tells David what those purposes are. You're going to have a descendant to sit on your throne forever. Even in the midst of his sin, God is making such great promises to David. Why? Because the promise is unconditional in nature, as is the new covenant, the land covenant, the Abrahamic. Can't get into all of those particulars, but notice what I did not say. I did not make reference to the Mosaic covenant as one of those four. And the Mosaic covenant is not an unconditional covenant, it's a conditional covenant. If you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will be judged. They're very different covenants. And that's why Paul says the Mosaic law was added alongside of these other covenants, not as a supplement, not as an addition to, but as something distinct from the other covenants that God had established. When I think of Israel, that's what we're talking about. When I think of the Jewish people, the land of Israel, with regard to the past, God has made these overwhelmingly significant promises to her. And those promises to her guaranteed that they would be his people forever. And thus they are his chosen people with God's particular purposes for her. So what does that mean for Israel today? What does God's past choice of the people of Israel, I have chosen you not because you're the greatest of all people, Deuteronomy 7, but because I have loved you. I've set my love upon you. It's all due to the grace of God. But what does God's activity over Israel in the past have to say about what God is doing among Israel and the Jewish people in the present? And there are a number of things we could be thinking about. First of all, it suggests to us that, number one, God is not through with his people Israel. If you look at Romans chapter 11, Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11 that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That is to say that the gift that God has granted to the Jewish people, the calling that God has made upon the Jewish people, pronounced upon the Jewish people, are irrevocable, is irrevocable. He cannot bring that back. He has chosen them. They are his chosen people. So what does that mean for Israel today? They are still God's chosen people. These promises are still relevant to God's chosen people. And it means that any others, be they in churches or anywhere else, that would suggest that somehow God is through with Israel, misunderstands what the word of God teaches regarding Israel. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance, I think is the King James New International, they are irrevocable. They will not be rescinded or changed. And so for the present, it means that the Jewish people are still God's chosen people. What else does it mean? It means that God then is still the protector of his people. He's the one who will protect them. He's the one who will preserve them. In fact, if you take a look with me in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah says this, perhaps in the most uh, powerful way than any other writer in all of scripture, I suppose. In Jeremiah 31, he tells us God's intention to continue to preserve and protect his people Israel. We may read that Israel, that the psalmist will say that Israel, or the prophet will say Israel is the apple of God's eye. And that's a pretty powerful statement. The apple of the eye is the pupil. And you know that when something or someone goes to touch the pupil of your eye, your immediate reaction is, you know, wax on, wax off kind of a thing, you know? (laughs) That's the first thing that came to mind. Sure, I know, I know, I'm getting old, getting old. Wax on, wax off, you know? Karate move, karate kid, right? So our immediate reaction is, hey, what are you doing? You know, we we just can't resist reacting To that which disturbs the eye. And the similar thing is true of what Zechariah says when he makes reference to the fact that Israel is the pupil of God's eye. You touch the pupil, God responds, God reacts, and judgment will come very quickly and very ferociously. But this passage, a very powerful one, verse 35, chapter 31, this is what the Lord says he who appoints the sun to shine by day, the one who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Well, that's pretty pretty wild, isn't it? I mean, that is, what can you say? In an, only if the moon, the stars, and the sun and that shine by night, only if those things vanish, will the people of Israel vanish from me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of the things that they have done. So, I know, I'll never forget when uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum was telling me that back in, in the day, I don't know how long ago, maybe like in the 70s or 80s, he was speaking at a university in Texas. And um, the title of his message was, How to Destroy the Jews. And he was hoping that a lot of Jewish people would come, you know, sort of like to, uh, oh, we got to hear what this guy's going to say about how Israel would be destroyed. And there were some Jews that came, but the largest majority of people that came on campus were these Islamic Muslim Arab types that came. (laughs) You know, they said, oh, great, let's figure, let's find out, you know. And so he went through all these passages that show God's faithfulness to Israel, faithfulness to Israel, faithfulness to Israel. And, you know, and Arnold, when he starts going through everything and he's reading every passage, you know, he can go for a long time. And so in the middle of his thing, as he was going, somebody stood up and said, so how can we destroy the Jews already? You know, you're telling us how people have tried and have not been able to. How can we do it? And he said, oh, well, uh, look at Jeremiah 31. And he said, and he read this passage. And he said, all you need to do is to develop some kind of missiles that can go up to the sun, the moon, the stars and destroy them. All you got to do is get a measuring tape long enough to measure the heavens and measure the stars and go deep enough to measure the foundation. That's all you got to do. And the guy said, there's got to be an easier way. (laughs) I'll never forget that. I thought that was so great. And that's what scripture is saying, right? What does God's choice of Israel and promise to Abraham and the, the other promises say about Israel today? It says that God still loves his people whom he has chosen. It says that God does not change his promises, his attitude, his commitment to his people that he has made. It means to say that God will continue to preserve his people and defend his people from all harm. It means that God will restore his people. We say that very easily today, but you know, I remember I used to have these tracts that went back to the 1800s, and these pamphlets that had been printed up by various churches and individuals that were speaking, you know, on a given topic in a church, and had hand out, you know, cards for people to come. And in one of these uh, brochures that I had, it was on prophecy. And the opening line said, you know, in Daniel's passage, uh, it says that at the last days, many shall go to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. And and this person who was speaking on prophecy said, You got to come out and hear this thing on prophecy because Daniel says, you know, in the last days, many will go to and fro and knowledge will be increased. And already the stagecoaches are leaving from Colorado to, you know, New York. Already the iron horse is making its way across, you know, the, the United States. And I thought, you know, um, in every era, there is sort of, they're looking, they're anticipating the coming of Messiah. What about our era? Think about knowledge being increased, the internet. Oh my goodness. It's like, just bang, exponentially. Knowledge has just sort of just multiplied uh, infinitesimally. And when you think about travel, how we just go from one place to the other and pass all these time zones in a matter of hours. It's just incredible. But one of the things... That, many times, these writers would say is, and keep your eye on Israel. You know, consider that back in the 1800s, 1700s. Keep your eye on Israel. And you and I are living in the day and post-decade, 66 years since Israel has become a nation. Whereas in the past, not too long ago, everyone is saying, keep your eyes on Israel. We're saying we've got our eyes on Israel and we've seen this stuff happening. What else is going to happen? But the scripture tells us things regarding the restoration of Israel, the nation of Israel. Check this out with me. Look at Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel chapter 36. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 24, Ezekiel gets very specific about the restoration of Israel, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. In verse 24, he says, I will take you out of the nations. So that presupposed a scattering among the nations. So Ezekiel, though he was in Babylon, he's now saying the nations all over the world. Israel will be, re, will be scattered. So the regathering must be a regathering from a scattering that had gone throughout the world. And that's what he tells us. For I will take you out of the nations. He doesn't just say out of the nation to which I have exiled you. But I'm going to take you out of the many nations. And look what he says. I will gather you from all the countries... It's to emphasize that Israel is going to be scattered among many nations, many countries, over a a long space of, uh, of our world and over a long period of time. And he says, and I will bring you back into your own land. So notice this too. He then says in verse 25, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. The issue of sprinkling of clean water is an indication of spiritual refreshment. In other words, Israel will be regathered from a universal scattering. They're going to be brought into the land, but they will not yet be spiritually made alive. The regathering will be a regathering of Israel in what is oftentimes referred to as unbelief. We're seeing that today. Most of the Jewish people who have regathered into the land of Israel are not believers, though there are many Jewish believers in Israel today, many more than there were, say, 66 years ago. But the point is that they will come in large numbers from all over the world, but not yet spiritually reborn, spiritually alive unto the things of God. It will be at a subsequent time that the Lord will sprinkle clean water upon the people of Israel and they will then know the Lord. And that's why Zechariah will say, they shall all know me, from, or Jeremiah, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That hasn't happened yet, but one day it will. That's why it says in Zechariah, ten men from the nations of the world will come to he that is a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. That hasn't happened yet because the spiritual awakening of the Jewish people hasn't occurred yet in mass or as a nation. But Paul says it will. All Israel shall be saved. That will happen after Israel first comes into the land in unbelief and sometimes subsequent to that. Israel will experience an outpouring of God's spirit symbolized by water and experiencing a spiritual revival. But Ezekiel also tells us how. He told us the process, but look at this. Look at chapter 37. Here we see Ezekiel in this valley of dry bones. He's in a cemetery. He's among all of these tombs. And he sees these dry bones. And he says, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. But look how it will happen. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. Then I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Later in the chapter, Ezekiel's told what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel. But look at the stages. Israel's restoration to the land will be in stages, it will come about just like these bones first. Are bones and then there's some sinew and tenons and muscle and nerves and then skin and then they stand up there are stages in which the bones come to life it's not just boom the bones come up and there's life given to a full uh, clothed uh, person full fleshed person no it's in stages that stuff is added to the bones And so the restoration of Israel will be in stages and additions. And that's exactly what we have seen in Jewish history. The very first waves of Israel, of Jewish people coming to Israel, the very first waves of those many aliyot, aliyahs to Israel was in the 1880s as a result of the pogroms. The second wave was in the 1890s as a result of more pogroms and czarist policies. Another wave came around the 1910s to the 1920s in formulating those early kibbutzim. Another wave came about after the Holocaust in the 19, late 40s and early 50s. Another wave came from the Arab countries after the Six-Day War and Jews that were scattered among North Africa and other Arab countries like Syria and Iraq. You know, there are 50,000 Jews that were airlifted out of Iraq somewhere around 1958 or so. But Jews from the Arab countries that did not welcome them, did not want them in their borders, that were persecuting them. They then were added. Then, as you know, in the 70s and 80s, Jews from Russia came in large mass. Millions came from Russia. In our day or not too long ago, 20 years ago, maybe now, Jews from Africa came especially from Ethiopia. And in our day, there are 200,000 Jews in southern Ukraine, 200,000 Jews in the Crimea. Already, many of those Jews are leaving the Ukraine to come to the land of Israel. Stages of inflowings of Jewish people. You know what the next country is? Mark my words on this one. It will be France. And you're going to see more and more Jews leaving France because of the persecution there. And more and more Europe as if these boycotts take hold and there's more antagonism and hatred among the Jewish people. But it's in stages. And notice what prompts the Jewish people to leave. In each one of these stages, it's always persecution. And the prophets said that as well. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 16. The mechanism the Lord would use to bring his people back into land is persecution. And so if you look at chapter 16, verse 16, he says, But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And after that, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill from the, from the crevices of the rocks. The means by which God uses to bring his people has always been the persecution of their host countries, host countrymen. And so it has happened in our day at the present and will continue to happen. Now, let me say one last thing. And that is to say we looked at Israel in the past and how God had made promises and covenants to his people. We looked at Israel in the present and we saw how God's covenants and promises are irrevocable and thus Israel is still God's chosen people. We've seen how God, in fulfillment to his promises, is bringing his people, has brought his people, and continues to bring his people into the promised land. We've seen how in bringing the people into the promised land, it's through persecution, has been the major mechanism that has led Jews to leave their host countries and go to the land of their fathers. But what does that mean for the future? There's a lot that can be said, and of course, I don't have the time to do this, but I want to just share some brief high points. Things that we can put our minds on and kind of be looking for. First of all, the end times and that final period of utter tribulation and trial that will come upon Israel will not begin until Israel signs a covenant with The false Messiah. Some refer to him as the Antichrist. Not all that pleased with that term. You can see why. But he is a future false Messiah. And the thing that starts that seven year period of trial and tribulation, what Jeremiah in chapter 30 refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble, is the signing of another covenant with the false Messiah. And it says that he makes the covenant with Israel and many. I think, no way to know for sure, I think the many is referring to Israel and her immediate Arab neighbors. We will not see peace between Israel and the, our Arab the, her Arab neighbors until the false Messiah comes who will enable that to occur. At least on the surface it will appear to occur. And it will come about as Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. You can also see this in Psalm 80 or 81. I think it's 81. Maybe 83. But first of all, in the future, Israel's covenant with a false Messiah will unleash the period of tribulation. That period of tribulation, it's very important that we understand this, that period of tribulation is tribulation aimed at the Jewish people. I know people think about how hard it will be on the world, but the issue of the tribulation is judgment on the nations and persecution among the Jews. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. But this time of persecution is spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 12, where we see Satan, the great dragon, is thrown to the earth and he makes war with the descendant, descendants Of the woman who is a symbol of Israel. We can't look at it all this morning. But the point is the target is the Jewish people that Satan has. The end times will begin or the tribulation period will begin. By the signing of the covenant with the false Messiah. Between Israel and the false Messiah. It will escalate when the false Messiah revokes the covenant, turns his back on the covenant and unleashes an untold persecution among the Jewish people that that is unprecedented. But thirdly, that time of persecution is used by God to purge his people, to cleanse his people, to refine his people. So Zechariah chapter 13 will say two-thirds of all the Jewish people will suffer and die during the period of tribulation. One third will come out refined as gold is refined, he says in chapter 13. As silver is refined. And in their refinement, they will come out clean as the people of God, as God had intended them. The purpose of the tribulation is to bring about the faithful remnant who will then make up all Israel that will be saved. So Israel must sign the covenant that inaugurates the tribulation. Israel will face untold persecution because of that association and that covenant went and broken. But Israel is also the catalyst for revival. 144,000 Jews, Revelation 7:14, will be used to bring the good news to those who will be suffering during that time of tribulation and trial. So while Israel experiences persecution, 144,000 are spokespersons for God during that time. And in Revelation chapter 11, two prophets are witnesses, particularly in Jerusalem. But that's not the only form of revival the Jewish people will be the catalyst for. It will also be because of the Jewish people's having been refined and having been brought to a place of repentance and cleansing that the Jewish people will be the reason why Messiah returns. Because as Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have stoned the prophets and those that have been sent unto you, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her sheep, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and I will not see you any longer. That's what Messiah is saying to Jerusalem, to the Jewish people, to Israel. You will not see me any longer until you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel might be the signing of the covenant that will unleash the tribulation period. She may be the object of the hatred of the evil one and of the nations who will attack Israel, of which two-thirds of the people will perish. In Nazi Germany, two-thirds of European Jewish community perished. But through the hands of the false Messiah, two-thirds of the worldwide Jewish community will suffer. One-third will be refined. That one-third will repent of her sin. Her sin is the rejection, not the death of, but the rejection of Messiah. And they will recite Isaiah 53. When he said, like we like sheep, they will say, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But now we know the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We thought he was being smitten and stricken of God and afflicted. But no, 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 no. We were wrong about that. It was for our transgressions that he was slain. It was because of our burdens that he bore. It was because of our sin. now we know what Messiah was doing in our behalf. And when they recite Isaiah 53, they will be cleansed of their sin, as Ezekiel had said. And they will be a nation that will bring glory and honor to the the Lord who has chosen them. And Messiah will return when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he comes, Messiah will establish his kingdom... And Israel will no longer be the tail of the nations, as as Moses prophesied, but will be the head of the nations. Israel at that time will be sought after not to be harmed, but to learn of the God of the universe. To learn of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To learn that salvation is found in the Jewish Messiah. To learn that God is a faithful God and that if we turn our hearts to him, he will not only save us and redeem us, but he will restore us and make us the kinds of men and women and boys and girls he intended us to be when he first created Adam and Eve in the garden. All of this comes through the crucible of the Jewish people. All of it comes through the crucible of the nation of Israel. We are the recipients of what God has done through Israel. And that is why Yeshua said salvation is of the Jews. And so in this time when we think of the Independence Day in Israel. We need to remember the good and the purposes God has for his people Israel. We saw in the past how God has chosen Israel and his purposes toward her with regard to the covenants. With regard to the present, we see how God continues to work among his people, preserving his people, restoring his people, and I ought to have said, saving his people. Because as Paul says in Romans 11, has God forsaken his people whom he has foreknown, may it never be. And he says, even at this time, there is a remnant saved by God's grace. He is still faithful to his people Israel in saving some. And in the future, we know that the time of trial will be aimed toward Israel to destroy her. That's Satan's purpose. And that's the nations of the world's purpose. But God's purpose is to refine her. God's purpose is to take the dross away from their their lives. God's purpose is to see that they shine like gold and silver, as pure as it can be. God's purpose is to enable his people to walk with him faithfully, so that the nations of the world would grab hold of them and say, tell us about your God, because he's the one and only true God. So as I think of the state of Israel, this is what runs through my mind. And I see it all sort of as a manifestation of God's wondrous work in the past, in the present, and what will be in the future. This is the God who is the only true God. This is the God who could do all of that, can change your life, can transform your life. Maybe in stages like Israel, a little at a time, but it's a little And it's at a time and it will occur until we are with him and made completely holy in his sight. If God can make these promises to Israel that have have stayed the test of time, the promises he makes to you and I will also stay the test of time. He will never leave you. He will never leave me. He will always provide what we need day by day. Give us this day our daily bread. He will always provide us with peace in the midst of anxiety. He will always be there and bring us through, even if we walk through the valleys of the shadows of death. It is for us to trust him, and it's for us to follow him wherever he would lead and wherever he would have us to go. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work among the Jewish people over the centuries. And Lord, your work among them is an indication of your faithfulness to us. That nothing could ever separate us from your love. Nothing could ever separate us from your grace. And nothing could ever cause your purpose for our lives not to come to fruition. Help us, Lord, to learn to trust on the truth of your word. And help us to be encouraged by it always, we ask. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.